Sometimes I think I'm Jesus Christ. In a powerful new drama, charting how he met Yoko Ono, broke up the Beatles and left Britain forever, Christopher Eccleston is John Lennon. Hey, oh. What are the balloons for? I'm setting them free. I'm setting everything free, me included. I'm the liberator. So, what have you got for me? It's sort of a protest. I like a protest. It's because of you getting all this publicity just because of who you are. And who am I? John Lennon. Okay. So what do you think of that, Dad? Welcome this week's One Day Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, we want to pick up on a couple of things that we had last week. First off, uh, there does seem to be some movement on the standoff on the Lennon sometime in New York City box. Right. And it won't be the sometime in New York City box. <laughs> this is what we're hearing. Some of the same folks who told us that there was a standoff are now saying that they are heading toward an agreement and they are going to include a pared-down version of the Sometime in New York City album, but it will be complete. And also they're going to include Live Peace in Toronto and the one-to-one concert. That would be a good set. Have They, they haven't settled the Zappa issue, have they? And he says, hi, Frank. I'd like to introduce you to John Lennon. And he was you know, sticking the mic at me like, oh, I'm going to go eek or something like that so i said okay come in and the first thing he said to me is you're not as ugly as i thought you'd be which leads me to wonder about the strength of his glasses because uh, i'm as ugly as uh, i ever was i'm just as ugly now as i was then and it's a great credit to mr lennon that he wasn't shocked by all of this so he came in and um, we talked for a few minutes and i asked him whether he wanted to play with us at the uh, concert at the fillmore east that night and he did and we just happened to have a recording truck there because we were recording the shows for another purpose and the tapes were made. Now here's the bad part. During the performance when Lennon was on stage with Yoko, we played one of my songs called King Kong. And the deal that was made according to uh, the usage of the tapes was he got to use the tapes for his purpose, I got to use the tapes for my purpose. 
he released part of that performance on an album called Sometime in New York and changed the name of the song King Kong to Jam Rag and gave himself and Yoko writing and publishing credit on the song. Now obviously this song has a melody and chord changes. Somebody did write it and it was not them. So, whoops. Ooh. Did you ever do anything about it? Um, not yet. John and Yoko claimed copyright on a song that Zappa said was his. That I don't know what the current status is, but that's a problem on top of another problem. Right. <laughs> right. right. There are problems with this set that are unique to it. Assuming that this is the way it goes, I'm glad that they're doing this. The one-to-one -one show, certainly the one we've had for all these years, the remixed version of that has been finished for at least oh, four or five years since Jack Douglas told us he'd done that. Right. And then I'm not sure what they can do to Live Peace in Toronto. As far as making it better? Yeah, as far as cleaning it up. Well, something could be done, but there'll be some repetition, of course, because the record on Sometime in New York City also has the live performance at the Lyceum. Song-wise, there'll be some repetition, but I mean, you know... Have we not come to expect that from these box sets? Well, this is true. I will be interested in seeing how far they pare back the rest of it. I would guess they're still going to stick with a, a five or a six disc set and then maybe stick everything else they have already finished on the Blu-ray. Who knows what exactly that will look like and who knows what price point that's going to come out at. I was going to say, hey, the whole thing will cost $15. <laughs> That would be nice, but I think we're probably looking at the, the most, single most expensive Lennon box yet. Although it does give them a lot more material to put out a nice book, both in the set and outside of the set, since that's what the Lennon estate seems to like to do. Right. It'll cover several years, 69 through 71. Not coincidentally, some of the same period that we're going to be talking about in this film that we've got here, which we'll get to in just a little bit because we do have some other items to cover before we get there back you film yes so you had asked for some footnotes last week on some of the claims that julia dykins had made in her book <laughs> and you graciously provided them <laughs> what we're about to talk about was covered lightly in the book and it's sort of implied in the film but she went all out in her interviews with the press and i'm going to read an excerpt from a couple of interviews she did here uh, one thing that is obvious, she was not a fan of Mimi. The attitude which comes through in the film came through from Julia Dykins. Right. I don't know the relationship with the Stanley family and Julia. I'm not sure how that works out. Seems to be a bit contentious. Very definitely. I mean, in 1997, that still seems a little bit weird to me. I think I said last week that it strikes me that that family was a family of secrets. There were secrets kept all over. That leads to animosity. They kept things from each other. And, and when discoveries were made, that tends to shock. And so that's kind of way that family went. The business of Ingrid slash Victoria seems to have struck Julia a lot harder than it struck John. You know, the fact that there was another sister out there. Yes, the headstone that is on Julia's grave lists John, Victoria, Julia, and Jackie. 
And so it lists all of Julia's children. So Victoria got on there, even though there was some shock and surprise when that was discovered. They were all very happy to have Victoria re-enter their lives in some form, but the history of it was unfortunate for them. And I think that there were some ill feelings, and, and somehow the, Mimi seemed to have been tied up in all those ill feelings. <laughs> right. Surprise. Here's this quote that I want to read. The journey of amazing discovery regarding Aunt Mimi began in 1997 when Julia visited her Aunt Anne, one of her mother's five sisters, whom she and John called Nanny. Anne, then 84, and nearing the end of her life, suggested that something was going on and Mimi had been planning to move to New Zealand, which was news to me. New Zealand being where Alf had planned to emigrate years before. Mimi's husband, George, died in 1955, and during her research, Julia found herself sharing a coffee in an Albert Dock cafe with the man who lodged at Mendips between 1951 and 1960. So now we, we have a full date on when Michael Fishwick lived at the home. Right. Although there was a gap in there. Half a year or so. He moved out before George died, and then he moved back in right after George died, which also corresponds to his finishing his undergraduate and then starting in on his graduate degree. So, I mean, maybe, maybe not. There's nothing questionable there. You can't really tell. Uh, The two became lovers in 1956, and yes, there had been talk about them moving to New Zealand. There's your footnote on that. It comes directly from Fishwick. And I don't know that you necessarily can make something out of that, but him moving out and then George dying in 55, and by 56, Mimi and Fishwick had become intimate. That's pretty fast. Fishwick does, in fact, give a date of the Christmas holidays of 1956 when their affair began. So is he lying? Is he? Who knows? We shall not speculate, Indeed. Or, 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 unless we already are. <laughs> well, I think I think we are already are to a certain extent. That news was actually a surprise to me that Mimi was was having an affair with the border, and I think in our talk we decided that by that time, by 1956, and at the end of 56, John basically was not living at Mendips. Or at least getting ready to not live at Mendes. Right. So at the Christmas of 1956, Mimi had taken John to Scotland to see her sister's family. Michael telephoned to say that he was ill and was going to stay at Mendips. Mimi left immediately without John and went straight back to Mendips to be with Michael. There was their opportunity. So, I mean, they were were ready in getting into this uh, at that point in time. At the, I, I think I will quote Eric Idle, who said, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> and then apparently the business of Mimi and George not consummating their marriage, Mimi still being a virgin, also came from Fishwick in this conversation with Julia. That's surprising. Again, unless there were physical problems or other things. that George was much older than Mimi. I mean, and, and Mimi was already, you know, at this point, Mimi was 50 years old. Right. And Fishwick was all of 24. that's a a pretty big age gap a few years later michael was offered the chance to go to new zealand on a project and he and mimi considered leaving liverpool and moving to new zealand however the funding for the trip fell through and michael had to stay in liverpool he was soon called up for national service and in 1960 the relationship was at an end and michael married another girl so apparently they had talked about John going with them, but I mean, John was already in art school and John was on the verge of going to Hamburg, so John wouldn't have gone with them. 
he was involved in his group at that point. It wasn't the Beatles yet. It was on the verge of being the Beatles. Yeah. So there's your footnotes. There's the answer to that story. I'm now willing to believe most of it. <laughs> right. Well, Michael Fishwick has never lied to us before. I looked for an obituary. I haven't found one. I, I do wonder whether Fishy is still with us or not. I mean, he would be in his 90s now. If anyone out there knows, let us know. We'd like to have him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> if his grandson can come and show him how to get on the internet. Yeah, if you can find out, send us a self-undressed elephant. <laughs> Which will then go to the Jim Keltner fan club. <laughs> we're going to pick up with our second film. We were going to cover it last week, but, well, we spent an hour talking about Nowhere Boy, more or less. <laughs> right. One of the things I found while we were going through uh, the background on this film, there was a National Enquirer headline concerning the first meeting of john and alf although you know we do have a fair bit of background on that as well which just kind of surprised me you know with a i didn't realize the inquirer was out there in 64 and b nobody ever really picked up the story right which in the inquirer headlines was kind of an angry quote from john and this is when it was all the happy beatles the beginnings of american beatlemania well, I think it'd be a little bit later than that. I don't have an exact date on it, but it's 1964. The event happened on April Fool's Day of all days, April the 1st of 64. And this headline would have been probably summer. Uh, it, it surprised me that that story was as angry as the headline implied. And it wasn't picked up. And there were certainly some bits and pieces, which is in part why Brian Epstein actually took that meeting. Someone had found Alf washing dishes in the British press. Right. Literally in the late 63, early 64, when Beatlemania really was a big deal. And questions are asked, you know, people would be like, well, what about John's father? Yeah. Nobody knows about John's father. Well, let's look into that. Isn't that convenient, as the church lady might have said one day? <laughs> right. It was newspaper manipulated. On a sort of vaguely completely different subject, this very much reminds me of the story of uh, Steve Jobs and his biological father. You know, he was adopted, and it turns out that his own biological father had emigrated and was the owner of a Lebanese restaurant where Steve Jobs actually went and ate lots of times when he was at Apple. You know, these, these, these kind of circumstances are just strange. It's very similar to the Lennon and Alf story, although, well, we won't go there. This is not Steve Jobs naked. This is John Lennon naked. <laughs> although we now know that Steve Jobs worked at Apple. <laughs> there you go. So the film starts with uh, Christopher Eccleston, uh, who portrayed the ninth version of Doctor Who. The ninth Doctor. And, and that was actually the thing that, hit, that first hit me when I watched the film. It took me a little bit of time to go, wait, that's the Doctor. <laughs> He's actually following in a grand tradition. Peter Capaldi, the 12th Doctor, had played George Harrison in John and Yoko, A Love Story. <laughs> if you want right. to look for bad mustaches, one decision they made on this film, we'll do wigs, but we're not doing fake facial hair. 
<laughs> yeah. Even if it doesn't quite match up with uh, everything else and with reality, we're not doing fake facial hair. Well, apparently, if you're a journeyman actor in Britain, you have to do a beetle at some point <laughs> in your career. And then, on top of that, David Tennant, the... 10th Doctor Who was also George Harrison in a comedy skit on Stephen Colbert. I'm John. I'm Paul. My name's George. I'm a quiet one. And I'm Ringo. <laughs> we are the Beatles. Very famous group band. We made Sergeant Pepper. Well, that's almost a great album. You know, I don't know if that counts or not, but he was playing George Harrison in this four or five minute skit. You know, if, if he announces himself as such on screen and gets the credit, I will accept it. <laughs> right. So, and who is it that plays Paul in this? In the Colbert skit? That was John Oliver, his friend from the uh, Daily Show era. He even gets to do a rap battle. Whoa! Mr. McCartney, let's start this party. I'm coming from a galaxy far away. Maybe I'm amazed, but probably not. You came from outer space, and that's all that you got? Chop that mop top off your head and make the rumors true. Paul is dead. You can't rap. You can't even sing, yo. How can you bring worse lyrics than Ringo? If you were asking about Lennon Naked, that actor is also known. His name is Andrew Scott. He's best known probably for being Moriarty and Sherlock and for being the, the hot priest in Fleabag. So get yourself a Beatle character to play, and you're on your way. So what are they going to do with the current Doctor Who, who is, of course, a woman? Are they going to do a gender-reversed version of the Beatles story someday, or are they, they just going to cop out and make her Linda? Jodie Whittaker? She's blonde, and she's of approximately the right height, you know. I figure she'd be with Cynthia. Oh, there you go. Nobody has done the Cynthia story, and she's got several books out, so there's plenty of material to write something. Now I know what I'm doing next weekend. We'll get to the representation of Cynthia in this film, good, bad, or indifferent. Although, <laughs> yes. although it, does, it does actually start there. They seem to have a bit of a Morrison kick. They, they didn't want to turn John Lennon into Jim Morrison. There's two or three scenes where, where the Eccleston Lennon just sort of submerges himself in water and you know acts like he doesn't want to come up. Right. That is where the film really begins. We, we get a little bit of color introduction and we see John just sort of holding his breath underwater. Fully dressed. <laughs> what they seem to be implying to me, which... I don't completely disagree with is that John could have potentially been a member of the 27 club could be, or they could have been making the point that John was very clean. You know. <laughs> well, that's a scene which didn't make the film. <laughs> well, you know, the story behind that, which will become relevant here in a minute. Alf went to the magical mystery tour party. It was a fancy dress party. He had apparently forgotten to get himself a costume. So he gave an actual dustman 10 pounds for his clothes and didn't wash them right and for those who don't know what a dustman is <laughs> it's a garbage man basically. <laughs> yeah basically yeah so alfred showed up at the magical mystery tour party in rather unkempt rather smelly overalls and the question is did john appreciate that 
or was he bothered? Because, you know, he, he might have been like, way to go, Dad. John got to live out his Teddy Boy fantasies, linking us once again to uh, the first film, to Nowhere Boy. Right. Patty was dressed up as a... Uh, Belly dancer, I think. Apparently, John spent most of the evening ignoring his wife and chasing after Patty. So maybe John could have been Eric Clapton first. No, no. <laughs> the thing that struck me about the two films we're, we're talking about is that Nowhere Boy is predominantly the relationship between John and Julia, his mother. And this is really the relationship between John and his father. You know, these two should really go together, even though we're doing them in two separate shows. <laughs> Such is life. Right. It wasn't meant to be that way. but uh... Once we get past this little prelude of John underwater, in real life, after there had been some stories in the British newspapers, Alf just sort of showed up at NEMS one day, April the 1st of 1964. Yeah, it was a meeting that was kind of arranged through a newspaper. The newspaper had found out. Unlike as shown in the film, it wasn't in a hotel room. It was actually at the NEMS building. I think it was Brian's attempt to deal with this i would tend to agree with that although brian didn't know when he would be showing up they'd all kind of said okay he's going to be here so be ready and be available so alf showed up brian sent a car over and actually it was not just john but george and ringo came with him you know i guess john just wanted the support or something yeah i would say that was probably it so in the film brian is, is played by uh, rory kinnear that's roy kinnear's son Small world. He didn't look too terribly out of place, although uh, Brian wasn't balding by that point. <laughs> right. This isn't exact. Eccleston looks kind of funny. His nose is uh, made up and his wig kind of is not quite right. It's a 46-year-old man playing 24-year-old John Lennon. Right. Hey, that's exactly the same d difference we're talking about between Mimi and Fishwick. <laughs> What a coinkadink. The version in the film just has John and Brian, after running down some stairs in a manner suspiciously like the Can't Buy Me Love scene in A Hard Day's Night, they reach the car, they go to a hotel, and they have a brief conversation about John's childhood. The dialogue that they have John saying doesn't seem quite right to me. He describes Julia as being feckless. I can't see John Lennon ever saying the word feckless, to be honest with you. <laughs> Right. You know, but, but we don't know true quotes. One thing that this film does is it does turn actual quotes into dialogue as frequently as they possibly can. Right. For better or for worse. Uh, and there's uh, real archival footage, not often, but at times. Unlike other films, they didn't doctor up their own fake Beatle footage. They're using real Beatle footage, and they're re using real Beatle songs. Yes. I'm not sure how they managed to negotiate that with Apple. You know, maybe they just had, hey, we've got Doctor Who and <laughs> Rory Kinnear. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, again, to go back to John and Yoko, a love story, the first time they ran it on NBC, they actually were allowed to use real Beatle and Lennon masters. All subsequent releases have sound alike. So they negotiated it for a one-time only airing, apparently. Another thing that this film does is that a lot of information and illustrations of their wit all occurred during press conferences. And this film 
continues to use press conferences beyond any point that the Beatles actually did press conferences. Yeah, I think that was probably just a money thing. We can reuse and redress this set. And you get a lot of information that way, too. So it moves the story along. The meeting between John and Alf does not go real well. As in real life, the first words out of Lennon's mouth are, what do you want? Alf tries to explain something to John, and he just doesn't really want to listen. And that's probably (laughs) the way it went. This film is much more sympathetic to Alf than a lot of things have been a bit more reasonable, and I actually like that. As with that story we were just telling about the Magical Mystery Tour party, Alf does not get cast in the best of lights most of the time. Right, and Mimi had no good things to say about him, that Alf Lennon. One of the things which they kind of just gloss over, don't even mention in the film, is that Alf did occasionally send letters, and Mimi just, she didn't destroy them, but she also never gave them to John. She never told him that Alf had written to try and make some sort of contact with him. Right. So, And, and in a modern sense, I think, what the hell? A father writes to his son, and, and his aunt decides not to give them to him. After John leaves the room, we go from black and white to color, a little bit of a Wizard of Oz here. Right. But that's the way the Beatles' career went. I think when they played early on, they were in black and white. They go a little bit Peter Jackson. They just give us little bitty clips of a lot of different things. And, you know, the years go by. Oh, oh boy, here's Yellow Submarine. Here's Revolver. Here's Sergeant Pepper. (laughs) Right. The scene goes to color as we go to a Magical Mystery Tour press conference. Which never happened. We do get to meet... The other three Beatles, and they're all being witty and, and funny. And, and John is also being very funny, at least out in front of the press. Right. One of the things about this film that I liked was that, I mean, I, I don't pretend to know the relationship between John and Paul, but it strikes me as being very real in that John's remarks could be off the wall, cutting any number of things, and Paul laughs or goes along with it even though he you yeah. can clearly see that he's thinking is this right or what do i want to say here <laughs> right yeah it goes back to the the get back thing do we really need to do this in, in now mr lennon yes yeah um but he laughs and and you know i mean he he clearly enjoys John's humor. You see them cutting up in front of the press, and uh, there is actually a genuinely funny quip there. It's- it was Paul's idea, but we all love it, don't we, fellas? We've all contributed ideas. I contributed sandwiches. <laughs> Brown and white. Ham and tongue. Thick and thin. <laughs> <laughs> and then John responds, I'm wrapping him in greaseproof paper. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then it cuts from there to, well, John and Paul at the urinals arguing. The most expensive home movie ever made. That's what this will be. Ryan had said, dude, you should have just done it. Ryan knew what he was doing. You never told him that when he was alive. He knew what I thought. Kind of letting the audience in. Brian's dead. This is their first project after word. And, well, things are not completely well in Beetleland. Oh, no. It's happening. I'm turning penguin. Oh my, the turning penguin. Yeah, and I am the walrus. <laughs> right, but he's dead, and I think Paul says, you don't just give up. Then John, yeah, you hire a coach. 
<laughs> right. Then it moves from there uh, into Kenwood. They did a really nice job building a replica of Lennon's house, at least externally. Yeah, they really did. My first thought was, oh my gosh, did they get the shoot on the grounds? It's that well done. Yeah, and this was pre-digital, so I mean, they actually had to have built some additions to this house that they filmed in. Right. Now we kind of get into the relationship between John and Cynthia. Yeah. Not good, not bad. Cynthia comes off as being very milk toast. Yeah. You know, Cynthia likes to sell herself as, well, I was an artist too. To be honest, I've never really seen it. I don't think her art was ever really all that good, and her writing is amateurish. Yeah, I guess. Maybe being a little hard on Cynthia. She was a, a girl from Liverpool who had a... Who got pregnant and married a beetle. Right. The story seems to be that she loved John and wanted to be with John, and John got married because that's what she did. He's always been very blunt about why he married Cynthia. I mean, he even was pretty blunt about Julian being born out of a whiskey bottle. That's not been a secret. I mean, it was for a while, but even in Hunter Davies' book, you kind of see how bored Lennon is, and even Cynthia recognizes it, that he's looking for something. What we see is Alf moving into the grounds. Right. There were letters exchanged, and John, especially as he moved to a philosophy of universal love and peace and everything, he softened and allowed more contact with Alf. We get this uh, a somewhat heated conversation between John and Alf, where Alf tells John what I was kind of just saying. Oh, you've heard the gospel according to your Auntie Mimi, starring me as Herod, Judas, and Pontius Pilate all rolled into one. And isn't that the truth? We're talking about a woman who hid the letters <laughs> that he had sent to his son. So that's what John heard, was that Alf was a layabout and abandoned his family. And that has to hurt a little boy. And during this whole time, we see the young child who represents Julian. And I think they hit that a little bit hard. Yeah, your dad did it to you and you're doing it to him. Huh. Isn't that ironic? Well, I've always thought that. <laughs> we get introduced to Dot. And I went up for an interview. Oh. And I... And, to Cynthia. And Mrs. Powell, her mother. And uh, I went there. And Julian was pottering around, around. And they agreed to employ me. The actual maid at the Lennon household that would be housekeeper house well she may have been made <laughs> at the time you know the, the language hadn't changed just yet and they have a conversation about brigitte bardot because john's going to go see brigitte once he comes back from india right and you know for those who don't know john was long fascinated with bardot there was actually a framed photo of bardot in the house that was both in the film and something which came out of real life Right. Then we get just a little touch of the Blackpool thing again. The uh, do you want to go with me or do you want to go with her? I think kind of demonstrating the cracks in Lennon's psyche, I guess, is really sort of representative of John going off to India. Okay. Yeah. Looking for inner peace and what's at the core of all of this great search that John has. We come back to yet another press conference. Got a limited amount of time, so if you keep your questions brief, we'll try to get through as many of you as possible, yes. There is a scene that I thought was funny. Why did you come back from India in such a hurry? 
Well, the plane wouldn't fly any slower. Something the actual McCartney would have said, yes. And most of these quotes are taken directly from real interviews. Uh, I think Maharishi was a mistake, but the teaching have got some truth in it. What do you mean they were a mistake? We made a mistake. I think other people are making a mistake we're going to see uh, now. That's up to them. We're human, you know. <laughs> that's all, you know. We thought there was more to him than there was, you know, but he's human. Does this mean that you've finished with him now? He's well, not finished with, you know, but we're over that phase. My recollection was that it, it's from interviews when Paul and John went to New York. Yeah, a, a lot of this is also from there. But you know. the Maharishi stuff, there was some press availability, and I know John and Paul were together. <laughs> right. I don't believe that John ever had any kind of frank uh, discussion about the Maharishi in front of George. We know what George thought and we, we know what John thought. And I don't think John would have put it in his face like that. Well, you, you wonder what George thought of the, the Maharishi version of sexy Sadie. I mean, he certainly heard it. He was there. Well, yeah. It's not like John sang the vocal without George's involvement. I've always read it was George's objection to it. That actually killed it and turned it into Sexy Sadie? Yes. But in the story, the big thing was that Alf had gotten married. Alf marries his considerably younger girlfriend who was a a Beatles person. <laughs> right. I've met someone, John. That's where I was going to see you. Sod off, then. She's 19. 19? You're 54. I know. I keep saying to her, go find yourself some young, good-looking fella, but she won't have it. What's her name? Pauline. I hope I'm still shagging 19-year-olds when I'm 54. You're a Lennon, aren't you? I am, yeah, and you're a dirty old goat. <laughs> She's the reason I was thinking about getting my own place, John. She married him and she stayed married to him. They didn't get divorced. Right. And they had children. Uh, they had at least two. Two boys, I believe. David is actually a scientist. He's a physicist these days, for whatever that's worth. Well, maybe he works with Brian May. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know that, but that's cool. But apparently that also had some impact on John. Yeah, less yeah. so here. The film talks about that a little bit later when John and Yoko start having their issues. Thinking about that girl. John had kind of been talking about Yoko, but this is the first time we see her. They, they, they have a glance of her doing her cut piece on stage somewhere, although it's not commented on. I, I, I believe that John is just sort of outside staring. He tells he's with uh, Derek Taylor, and they're on their way to Brigitte Bardot, and, and he has the, the limo stop, and he gets out and just sort of stares at through the window. Yeah, that's the only time I've ever, ever heard that reference, that John even witnessed that performance, the, the cut piece. It may be that they're just throwing it in here because, well, we haven't introduced Yoko. You know, maybe because they didn't want to do a 66 scene. Maybe it was too much trouble to do the ladder and all that. Maybe because there's a separate art piece scene here, they didn't want to do the first one. I, I would have done the John and Yoko meeting here. Yeah. 
although I mean, you know, this film is really trying hard not to be a John and Yoko film. Right. And the other person that gets introduced, Lil Powell, who is Cynthia's mom. You know, everybody else is somewhat deferential to John. Basically, you know, they may disagree with him and they get frustrated with his opinions. <laughs> but but Lil just levels it, you know. And we know that's the way she actually was. I don't yes. think I've read one description of her ever saying one complimentary thing about John Lennon. He never did take anything seriously. He invited you to live with them. Right. You are his mother-in-law, and he says, okay, fine, you know, Alf lived here. You can bring your mom in. And John put her up in a separate home for a while. I can understand why Lil might not have liked John in the beginning, but when he was keeping her in clothes and cars and food, you know, maybe lighten up a little bit. Yeah, I guess. Although I tip my hat to her that she... She didn't like him, and she continued not to like him. Right, because there were times when he did shitty things. It probably goes back to, you got my daughter pregnant, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You got my daughter pregnant, and you don't treat her particularly well. He's a long-haired teddy boy, and he never gave you the respect you deserve. That is, in fact, going to be very important a little bit down from here. So John and Derek go off to meet with Bardot. The Bardot meeting does not go well, although we don't really get told what happened until a little bit later it's intercut with scenes of bigger than jesus and and john just kind of wondering you know who am i if everybody loves me what does it mean because isn't that the same as nobody loving you right (laughs) this big long conversation with Derek, and then he he finally gets fed up and it's the middle of the night it's 5 a.m out in the middle of nowhere he gets out and says i want to walk it's like john you don't know where you're going and so the scene ends with John's just sort of walking away and the, the rolls following behind him very slowly. Yeah, barefoot, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so that then leads into the scene which started the film, you know, John fully clothed going into the pool. Right. Cute Julian. Are you stuck, Daddy? I am Julian, yeah. I'm stuck fast. <laughs> right. And John's response is, kid, let me talk to Pete. And and so we are now introduced to Pete Shotton, the same Pete Shotton from Nowhere Boy, John's childhood best friend who, who did indeed live with him and not quite act as his manservant, but act, act as his fixer, let's say, for a number of years. And ran Apple Boutique for a while. Pete Shotton, after he left John Lennon's service, he opened a a grocery store chain and became very rich off of that. Right. He was a wealthy man when he passed. Well, there you go. Um, but nothing had really happened until a particular night that I was staying at John's house. I'd been staying with him for months and we'd been up all the previous nights. I was ready to crash out. John could stay up two, three nights on the run. <clears throat> and he said to me about 10 o'clock at night, do you mind if I get a girl over? And when he told me it was Yoko, I was most surprised. I said, oh, I didn't realize you fancied her. And he said, well, I don't know. He said, there's something about her I like. Um, but, you know, while the wife's away, I might as well find out what it is. But you have a complaint about Pete. They couldn't find a blonde wig for him? I mean, they got it right in Nowhere Boy. <laughs> he was famously blonde. <laughs> very, very much so. The guy playing Pete Shotton, the actor wouldn't die it or they couldn't find a wig. He's just sort of got the same mousy brown hair that the wig that they gave to Eccleston. It may have even been one of Eccleston's old wigs. <laughs> right. <laughs> What the budget will will do. Then that cuts to a scene where we see Cynthia and Julian going off in the Rolls Royce 
on a trip to Greece. In real life, we're not completely sure. We're waiting on Lewison to tell us when this happened. We've always placed this event as being in late May after the Bordeaux meeting. There's some suspicions that it may have actually been as early as April before the Bordeaux meeting. Really? Okay. Well, I know she was in Greece for a bit, came back, and would leave again once she finds John and Yoko together in Kenwood. Which is not represented here. Right. She leaves after that awkward encounter, and Alex goes with her. So what we get is we get something which, again, this is a very familiar story, but they do it pretty well here, I think. We know that John and Pete were just sort of sitting around getting stoned, and and John said, I want to invite this girl over. Right. Yoko comes over. The three of them sit around chatting uncomfortably for a while. So she came over, and we spent half an hour chatting, right? And then I went to bed. Then John and Yoko go upstairs and, well, play with the tapes. Yeah. There is some question about you know, how awkward everything was because after all, John had already financed one of her shows. She was there during the Hey Bulldog sessions. I mean, it wasn't like they had no contact with each other at all. Yeah, I don't think it was so much awkward between John and Yoko. It was awkward between Yoko and Pete. (laughs) When you're trying to come on to this girl and and your best friend is there and because, you know, it's like, get out of here, get out of here, you know. (laughs) I think it was more of that kind of thing. You think? <laughs> that, that's yeah. my suspicion. You come over for a hookup and there's somebody else there. Exactly. And I mean, you know, it wasn't Pete's fault. John's the one who said, you know, Pete, can you come over and help me do this and do that? Right. Pete wasn't there completely of his own volition. <laughs> right. Can you help me call up this girl? It's like, it wasn't, can you help me call up this girl and get lost? <laughs> Right. He was still there after the... uh... He stayed the whole evening. Right. Again, which John has talked about, is represented pretty well here. You know, he comes down the next day and it's like, oh, well, she's still here. Next morning, I got up early for me, 8 o'clock, and John was in the little room off the kitchen. And uh, I thought that he got up early and he astounded me, said he'd been up all night and that Yoko was still upstairs. And just something in his tone of voice made me realize that there was something. Because I said, you know, oh, have a good night then, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And he didn't react. He was flat about it. He just said, yeah, it was great, Pete. And then uh, I sat down and he said, Pete, um, this is what I've been waiting for all of my life. And the shocking thing, you know, was she's still here. And can you find me a house? Because I want to go live with Yoko. Yeah. And Pete, of course, knew Cynthia from the beginning. Pete and John were together before Cynthia was on the scene. Right. So. So he knows the whole history of the relationship and for john to come in and go find me a house i want to move in with yoko but there's also the big thing about john telling everybody that he had decided that he was jesus that was going on at the same time so everybody was wary of although that's not in the film it's not in the film but it was going on so i mean he even called a a board meeting (laughs) at apple to tell everybody this So, you know, people were kind of questioning where he was at. And I think it it, it goes to the point of John saying that one of the reasons he loved Yoko was that she saved his life. I think he put it like, you know, she showed me what it was, what it was to be Elvis Beetle. But he was going off the rails. 
Well, again, you know, the, this is kind of what the film is implying, that, that John came dangerously close to becoming a member of the 27 Club. It's interesting you mentioned the, the John Lennon thing about being Jesus. Jesus liked to visit the Beatles a lot. <laughs> yes. During the Pepper sessions, a guy came up to Paul's house and said, you know, I'm Jesus. And, you know, Paul said, oh, well. Okay, come, to come, the on, come along to the session. And and so, you know, Paul bought this guy, and the, the guy just sort of sat there and watched the session and then left. Right. Well, I wonder if at the board meeting when John says, I've, I, I, I'm Jesus, that Paul didn't go, no, you're not. I've met him. <laughs> <laughs> then we move on to one of the early art shows, and this just sort of gives them a theme, the, the You Are Here art show. Right. Lots of white, lots of balloons, and... An actual event, which is, again, represented pretty well here. Art students saying, you know, you're only getting this show because you're John Lennon. Here's something that you forgot. And they brought in this rusty bicycle. Oh, they found on the street and John just goes nuts. It's like, great. They thought they were being insulting. And he was like, perfect. <laughs> Brilliant. So now we're, we're about halfway through the film and we get to the divorce proceedings. Which are contentious. <laughs> Although Cynthia actually comes out best in this film during these divorce proceedings. It's the lawyer and it's her mom and it's John who are kind of being bitchy back and forth to each other. Yeah, I think Lily goes, he's a long haired teddy boy. What are you still doing in my life? I never wanted to be in your life. I never wanted her in your life, neither. Well, you should have spoken up. You'd have saved a lot of bloody heartbreak. You're cruel. You're cruel and spiteful. And you can't keep your hands to yourself. I can feel it falling off me right now. I'm getting lighter by the minute. He's a sex maniac, just like his mother. You never knew my mother. Nor did you. Adultery, you're citing, is it? With Yoko. Mr. Lennon. Do you want to know how many other women have adulterated since we got married? No, I don't. Too many to count, girl. We'll be here all day. Shut up. Shame on you and your little whore. Mr. Lennon. Oh, for God's sake, call him John. Through the lawyer, please, Lil. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point of this conversation is, is everything needs to be through the lawyer. Right. Once again, we get sad Julian off in the corner. He doesn't get to say anything. He just gets, gets to kind of, kind of look sad. As John walks away, he, he kicks the soccer ball and John kicks it back and then exits scene left. He kicks it back, but he doesn't kick it to Julian. He just kind of kicks it off so that Julian kind of runs off to get it. And then he turns around to see his father just kind of walking out. And, you know, we also need to say that this is the reason Paul wrote Hey Jude was how sad it was. So then we move on to a meeting at Apple. They had enough of the press conferences for now. So it turns into a group meeting at Apple where they're talking about what are they going to do with the White Album. The argument of whether it was too long or... And I think the point of this discussion is really just to show that John is both separating himself from the group as well as his marriage, but he still has this foot in the Beatles world. Why they don't have a George Martin character, I don't know. Maybe they didn't want to pay somebody. But they have Derek Taylor saying, well, it's not really Beatles music, is it? Julia. That's just you, John. Blackbird. Julia was my mother. She wasn't George's or Paul's. I know that, I'm just saying. I'm just trying to communicate the financial side of this to you. I mean, Revolution 9? We're the Beatles, Derek. We made the music. Ergo, it's Beatles music. 
And that's exactly right. I mean, who would now go, well, you know, the, the White Album's not really Beatle music. I mean, it absolutely is now. The idea that somebody would actually say that is like, wow. But I get it. When you look at what the Beatles were, what is Rocky Raccoon? What is... I can't think of a better way to represent it, but it does seem a little bit crammed in here. Okay, the Beatles aren't happy with each other, which then, of course, leads to John and Yoko going down to their uh, Montague Square apartment and taking the two virgins pictures. And yes, be warned, there is both male and female nudity on screen in the film. Very much nudity. Wow, who would have thought that Eccleston would put his junk out there like that? But, you know, there you hey, go. You're, you're playing John Lennon. <laughs> yeah, right. The challenge, of course, when you're, when you're going to shoot that scene, you think, well, he did it. You know, and it is madness. And in his kind of idealism, he said, we're naked, let's show it. So you, you, you do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you all have to look at it. <laughs> you know, we go through the, the release of the Two Virgins album, and we learn that Yoko is pregnant, which leads immediately into their drug bust. Now, now this is this is somewhat different than reality. I guess that meeting could conceivably be representative of the the twenty four hour session, because the drug bust did come immediately after that. Yes. You know, there's a lot of discussions going on at that point, you know, uh, how to promote this. I mean, it was their first Apple release, and there was talk about hiring some big promotional campaign and commercials on TV and all this stuff. And and so I'm sure there are all sorts of discussions. Now, the timing of this whole set here is uh, not quite right. You know, they, they move some things around. Yeah. So this leads into John staying in the hospital, life with the lions, no bed for Beetle John. Although I do wish they had had Eccleston Lennon put up the white album pictures behind him. That's what you get off the life with the lions cover. And tied in with this is John sending back his MBE, which is a almost a year later. Yeah. Which then goes into on a John and Yoko press conference, which is actually really just trying to get the Gloria Emerson interview in here somewhere. Very Can you understand one. that? No, I can't. A very big advertising campaign for peace. And well, you think Are it's... you advertising oh, do you want, Lennon or Do you want peace? nice middle-class gestures for peace Maybe. and intellectual manifestos in written by a lot of half-witted intellectuals and nobody reads them? That's the trouble with the peace movement. I can't think of anyone who seems more remote from the ugliness of what is happening than you. And I'm someone who admired you very much. Oh, well, well, I'm sorry you like your mop tops, dear, and you thought I was satirical and witty and you liked Hard Day's Night, love. But I've grown up. You obviously haven't. Have you? Yes, folks. <laughs> it's become a very famous interview. And why they decided to put it in a press conference other than, well, that's how we've done everything else. Right. It, it's part of the way the film is structured, but it was not a press conference. It was a press interview at the Apple offices. I got the impression from the interview that she has known them for a while, but clearly by that point they had a different view. I mean, a lot of people thought that his whole acorns for peace and bed ins and all that was silly that that really wasn't making any difference. But as John said, it's an advertising campaign for peace. Wars in the papers every day. If they can get in the uh, the papers saying peace, 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 that was making a difference. 
We see the Montague Square apartment getting incrementally more run down. Although we see them printing up the posters and the armbands for peace and they look way, way too nice. <laughs> right. The, the, the real right. ones were, you know, very sort of homemade and bedsheet kind of things. Here, these are actually professionally printed. Yeah. And, you know, Montague Square w- didn't last very long because as soon as they got busted, which was in October of 68, they were tossed out. They didn't stay there. You know, again, we get another scene of John more directly doing the Jim Morrison thing, you know, head underwater in the bathtub. <laughs> right. But he does come out and he talks to Yoko and, and there's a line there that I like. It's not peace I want, it's pandemonium. Yeah, I didn't understand that really. I agree. I don't know how it necessarily fits in, but I like the line. <laughs> right. Because I can't imagine John saying it's not peace I want because that's exactly the opposite of what he was saying. It is peace that he wanted. Then they throw in a second miscarriage. Now, Yoko did have a second miscarriage, but yes. the second one was much less further along and it was much less public. Then they throw in a scene which very definitely, according to Pete Shotton, came before the big drug bust. Apparently, John had gotten heads up that the squad was coming down. And so he called Pete. Pete is his fixer saying, you know, look, hoover up the carpets. Do everything we can. Let's get this place as clean as possible. <laughs> he said that in interviews. In fact, Don Short had told us they're coming to get you three weeks before. So <laughs> believe me, I'd clean the house out because Jimi Hendrix had lived there before in this apartment, and I'm not stupid. I went through the whole damn house. Pete, in his book, you know, describes actually going through with a fine-tooth comb and cleaning up and disposing of the vacuum bag. So anyway, they, they moved this event here for some reason. Yeah. Well, you know, that bust has always been one of those things. Could you actually come and bust one of the Beatles at that point in time and not find anything? So, you know, there's a second miscarriage. And this is also our goodbye to Pete. Pete and John have an argument. I've had enough. And, uh, you know, this ties into what you were saying. You know, Pete was there all the way through with Cynthia and he and Yoko weren't the best of friends. It's like, okay, fine, you know. I don't need this anymore. That then goes on to a rather funny meeting, a a Monty Python-esque little sketch there about uh, the colors of paper and the Beatles' tax liability. All right. Take that page out. Forget the yellow sheets. Or just turn them over. Um, The tax liability for arrangement day is on the green sheet. I liked it better when Brian used to slap sweaty fivers on us after the gig. I think that John referred to it as, you know, monopoly money. It, at that point, it was it wasn't real in a way. They were just talking figures. I think John and George, to some degree, was like, "So, how much do we really have? How much is in our hands?" So, <laughs> Monty Python is pretty close to the truth. You'll notice there's no Klein. There's no rather uh, greasy-looking uh, rotund gentleman here in this meeting. Right. When John basically declares that the group is over, the whole thing of Paul's objections to Klein and all that, uh, it just never occurs in this story. Which really makes the following scene a little bit strange. I mean, even though it's a you know, reasonable enough representation of something that actually happened. The meeting, the, the it's over meeting? Following the it's over meeting. So, so the it's over meeting is kind of their representation of, I guess, the, the September uh, 69 meeting. Yeah. You know, some of it is like, I think John says, you know, I don't need the rest of you to 
There's four of us in this band. There is, yeah, and if there isn't four of us, there isn't a band. You're jet-lagged, John. I'm not. We just need to do something fresh. We need to get out there on the road. We need to get out there in front of people and make music. That's what I've been doing in Toronto with Yoko and Clapton. I don't need the rest of you to do that. You're a weight round me from the off neck. Thanks very much. You want me to toss you off or you want me to tell you what I'm really thinking? What you're really thinking and what she's really Face thinking. Face it, we're not doing anything that means anything anymore. You know it. Admit it. I'm not sure it went down that way because John is funny. And that's why he said, you know, I want a divorce. Yeah. The upshot of that is John goes up here when he's pointing at his head and then he bangs on his head. It's over. But out there, it's not. Right. Which is a good retelling of the situation. You know, in my head, it's over. And he never went back. The, the others went back. They did I Me Mine and, and worked on some material. But in his head, it was it was over. That makes the brick through the window scene kind of slightly nonsensical to me. Well, uh, as far as the, the anger? Yeah, the anger and, and, you know, fake Derek telling him, well, well, you ended it. And I mean, you know, that makes sense in, in real life, but in the film, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Well, I, I think, you know, in John's head, yeah, he ended the band. He'd said it wasn't anything anymore. And, and he was basically said, well, look, you know, we've, uh, we've got these, uh, negotiations going on with capital the royalty rates you know if you announce that you're leaving the beatles now it's just gonna foul all that up and you're not going to get all that money and so he agreed to that and then paul being paul used him putting out his solo album as the story you know he he is the the ad guy publicity guy and so that's what made john really bad that paul had announced it. I, I think there's a quote in there. The Beatles was my band, not his. Not his. You get Apple Scruffs yelling various sort of racist remarks about Yoko at John, and you know John climbs the fence and chucks a brick through Paul's window. Right. Whereas he should, should have thrown a brick at some of those fans. <laughs> so that then moves on to John's meetings with Arthur Janov and moving into Primal. I find it interesting that there was no Klein and, you know, here's Janov and there was Lil. And, you know, Klein was probably one of the biggest figures in terms of John's mental state in 1969 and 1970 than anybody. You know, maybe even Yoko or as much as Yoko. And to not have some representative of him here, maybe they were concerned about being sued by Klein's estate. Yeah. <laughs> and I say that half jokingly, but there were actually some mentions when uh, the, the Linda McCartney story was made. In that telefilm, they actually changed the name of the Klein character. Well, he was kind of a litigious guy. I don't know. All I'm saying is I would have found a way to represent him somehow. Yeah, it's odd that he doesn't play any role whatsoever. I do like the representation of Jana of all suede jackets and leather patches. That's pretty much the way I've always envisioned Arthur Janoff. That's the way he is on the back of the jacket of his book. The slimy faux academic. Slimy, you said? I don't really believe in any of his psychology. You don't? He might as well be the Maharishi. I mean, John's right. It's it's daddy. I suppose. Although, you know, the whole idea of therapy is that you can, you know, you live your life 
and you go on and and there's crises and all sorts of things and you survive them they could traumatize you whatever rarely do people take the moment to look back and go how did that affect me it's rare and so that's what Janov was promoting was the idea that you would go back and look at your life and see what effect it had on you and you can certainly look at the uh, Plastic Ono Band and see the effect of Janov's uh, ideas. I believe in therapy. I just don't believe in Janov's brand of therapy. I believe that you can talk through your problems and discover things about yourself. But I, I don't necessarily think lying on the floor screaming is going to reveal yourself. You want to abandon. Not me, John. You. So this scene takes us into the infamous John's 30th birthday scene. And, you know, we spent so much time in this film looking at angry John. And, you know, they've they've turned events a little bit harder than they were in real life. And they take one of these single most difficult and hard events of adult John's life and soften it here as Alf comes in. Right. Yeah, that's a pretty big scene in John's life because he he levels him at that point. If the stories are to to be believed, John said he was going to tie an anchor around him and and send him so deep in the ocean they'd never find his body. Or as Kanye West would say, I have the money to destroy you. (laughs) There you go. Of course, you know, John was playing mother and, you know, that leads out of another retelling of the Blackpool story. Right. So... Do we believe that? It was part of John. It's something which certainly hurt him very badly, but maybe it's just the five-year-old talking. I think that's what you have to look at this from that viewpoint. You know, both this and, and Nowhere Boy. Yeah. You know, the memories are from somebody who is five years old. And then certain things were reinforced by Aunt Mimi. Whether you believe it, you certainly have to believe that it was John's viewpoint. Then in the final set of scenes, we see the post-imagined period. We see John and Yoko getting ready to take off for New York City to live. And, uh, you know, John's all... Would you agree that you've alienated a lot of the British public, John? They've alienated me. Listen, I can't be a slave to gold records forever. I've grown up and now I'm leaving home. And in my case, that means kissing goodbye to mummy country and daddy, you know, daddy whatever it is that daddy stands... <laughs> right. And then the big question. What about your son? I don't believe in Beatles. And then as the plane takes off, one of the balloons from the balloon event flies by, you know, there's shades of Forrest Gump. <laughs> right. And as with Nowhere Boy, we get a little caption here. On September 3rd, 1971, John Lennon left the UK and flew to New York. He was never to return. Now, I mean, that's true, but it really wasn't of John's choice that he was never to return. And he, in fact, was going to return in 1981. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it completely leaves out the idea that he couldn't leave because if he left, he would never be able to come back. To the States, yeah. This is another caption, which is kind of a half-truth. Yeah. You know, as with the, he phoned Mimi every week for the rest of his life. Yeah. <laughs> right. That is Lennon naked. Let's do some just general 
closing remarks and reviews on the two films as a whole. We'll we'll start with the Lennon Naked. I liked it. I didn't love it. I think this film does a better job of representing John's humor. Uh, and he's at least a slightly more rounded person than he was in Nowhere Boy. Yeah. You know, I liked it because it treated Alf more like a real person rather than this evil guy who just abandoned everybody. And Yeah, what, what we see in Nowhere Boy. Right. George gets about two lines. It was Paul's idea, but we all love it, don't we, fellas? Abbey Road and Alf. I'm gone a minute. You jet lag, John. I'm not. She's not a Beatle. Shut up, George. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's kind of funny that that's the case. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, even the films treat George badly. <laughs> like he was barely there. It's the Ruddles, you know. Stig hadn't said anything publicly since 1962. Exactly. But Ringo did actually, he got, he got a couple of funny remarks. The point is, I guess... John and Paul matter a little bit. John and Cynthia matter a little bit more. Uh, John and Alf is the story we're trying to tell. Right. And right. John and Yoko is just kind of somewhere in the middle there. Well, you, you couldn't have a story about John Lennon and not have George and Ringo somewhere. It's just maybe the budget said, we can only have these actors for a day. Could well be. It was a TV movie. So, I mean, give it a rating. Uh, give it... Let's let's just let's just do the Cisco and Ebert thing, you know, two thumbs up, one thumb up, two, one thumb down, two thumbs down. I'll give it one thumbs up. It's not great, but it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I'll I'll agree with that. You know, it's not a thumbs down, and and it is a reasonable enough representation of the truth. It's probably a better representation of the truth as we know it than Nowhere Boy was. Of course, in this instance, we have so much more source material to be able to say, okay, here's what people have said happened. Right. And, and in a lot of cases, it's just direct quoting of dialogue. Though I did like Nowhere Boy. No, so Nowhere Boy I would also give one one thumb up, although I would put it below Lennon Naked. Okay, so is that like a half thumb up? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll say a half thumb up, but you know, <laughs> if we were doing ABCDF, I would give... Lennon Naked a, a B and uh, Nowhere Boy a C. I'd give Lennon Naked a B plus and Nowhere Boy a B minus. Okay. I mean, we're not too far off. Yeah. yeah. They're not history. They're not documentaries. and um, But they they do a good job of of representing kind of what went on. And, and we've questioned some of the things that were questionable, but. For the most part, they tell the, the story. Yeah, and they, they tell it reasonably well, I think. Yeah. John, your little friend's here. <laughs> All right. Great. So uh, we'll be back next week with a new show. Yes, we will. <laughs> so we will see you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
Thank you so much. We're the Beatles. You guys have been a great crowd. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at The Real Beatles UK. And we're also on Instagram. That was just the underscore Beatles one. Check it out to see some exclusive backstage pics and some throwback Thursdays. Feel free to ignore the photos of Ringo's brunch. What was it yesterday, Ringo? Eggs Benedict. Oh, we're also doing this cool thing with Vine. Just upload a six-second vid of you saying who your favorite Beatle is and why. And tag it with the hashtag SpriteBeatles to enter to win two tickets to an upcoming show and 10% off your next can of Sprite. Hashtag Obey Your Thirst. Oh, John, don't forget to tell them about the live tweet. Oh, that's right. Next Sunday, we'll be live tweeting the MTV Video Music Awards from the Red Bull Soundstage. We'll be doing this cool thing where we try to get a random phrase trending worldwide. So tweet out a silly phrase and be sure to include the hashtag Red Bull Beatles. We'll pick our favorite and get it to trend. Ringo, what was your suggestion? Eggs Benedict. Classic. Hashtag Red Bull gives you wings. Oh, one more thing before we go. It's, it's Selfie Sunday on Instagram, so come on, guys. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.